0: This is Portland Conversations, and I am Jason Elm, and the conversation continues as we talk Portland politics. Here today with Albert Lee, District Three candidate for Congress Albert how are you doing i 'm doing well thank you for having me yeah, thank you so much for coming on uh, I hope you and yours are all safe during this uh covid crisis
1: We are doing our best to stay safe we 're staying at home like everyone should
0: wearing our masks when we have to go out amen let 's get right into it um, when I think about what 's going on especially i mean right now uh and the lack of national leadership. To me, leadership is vitally important, and especially in Washington, right? Uh, Albert, tell me about uh, providing good, solid leadership during this very unsettled time. Thank you. Yes,
1: I, I agree with you. I think that uh, we have had a lack of solid leadership for quite a long time when it comes to uh, our representation in Congress uh, for far too long. Uh, We have had this political duopoly between uh, bought and paid for Democrats versus bought and paid for Republicans who are really doing the bidding of uh, the wealthy corporations and uh, the 1 percent as opposed to taking care of the people. In the last month, we've seen uh, that type of leadership where trillions of dollars have been uh, injected into Wall Street to ensure that the assets of the 1 percent are protected. But when it was time to talk about helping the people. We had to deliberate. They had to discuss it. And out of four or five days of deliberation and discussion, a paltry $1,200 was given to some of the people uh, that are affected by this crisis, leaving far too many uh, in the lurch. We've got 30 million people uh, without jobs right now. That means there's 30 million people and and families without health care. It's a demonstration that demonstrates that uh, our private uh, employer-based health insurance is simply failing during this crisis. We need somebody, uh, a, a set of leaders that are going to actually affect the change that we need, including having a single-payer Medicare for all system.
0: Yeah, when I when I when I think of uh, the number you give, thirty million, right? I, I think of uh, how do we get ourselves, you know, out of this, and how do we get ourselves out of this the right way in an, in a you know an equitable recovery, not just giving to the top tier bracket one percent. Uh, how how do we and how do you um, in Washington really try to uh, make that a reality?
1: It's all about who gets what and how. That's what, that's the name of the game when it comes to politics. And we have seen time and time again, the who is the 1%. The how is through buying their politicians off. And the what is the the funds. Uh, we need to break that cycle. The only way we're going to break that cycle is to start re- uh, electing citizen representatives who know the struggle, who won't take the corporate contributions, and who, who are going to truly fight for the people. Now, we've got nine solid progressives out there in a field of 535 uh, delegates to uh, the uh, to our Congress right now. If we get another nine or ten in, and we've got hundreds of solid progressives running across the country right now, that is a voting block. That is a voting block that can take their leverage to actually affect change. That can actually uh, make the changes happen that the people want and need. Uh, when we when I was talking about universal health care, you know, we're we're over 70 percent of the population that want it. Um, yet we still have a Congress that is dragging their toes on it. We have one party that says absolutely no. The other party is trying to divert us and, and, give us all these other options on why we need to incrementally change this. But the fact of the matter is, uh, we need the change and we need it now. So, um, it is my hope that come Tuesday, I am, a, uh, I am, uh, nominated for the Democratic party and move on to win in November. Uh, and throughout the election cycle, I hope that more Uh, progressive champions will come and that we can get that voting block to make those things happen.
0: Yeah, when we're talking about this equitable recovery, uh, one of the, I think, building blocks in all this is going to be affordable housing. How can you assure and really work towards maintaining and building some affordable housing here in, in Portland?
1: Well, right now, Portland suffers what a lot of different metropolitan areas suffer, and what a lot of different uh, touristy areas suffer, and that is real estate developers developing studio and one-bedroom apartments for investment real estate. Yeah. You know, that's not that's not building for families. We need uh, uh, development that's going to develop two, three, four-bedroom apartments uh, for people, affordable apartments. And I'm not just talking about having uh, a high-rise of studio and one-bedroom apartments, and you you put ten percent at a, a slightly below market rate, that is not gonna cut it. Uh, we need to, uh, first of all, uh, change that script in, instead of focusing on those investment properties and start building for the families. Secondly, we need to take a look in, 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 in rezoning because quite frankly, we need to make our urban areas a lot more efficient. We need to get away from this white picket fence, single family house, uh, American dream types uh, reality or uh, idea and move to a reality where we have high density urban living. And I know that we're talking COVID crisis right now. People are kind of iffy about that. Uh, but again, there are other things that we can do on the federal level. Right now, we have basically one of the biggest wealth subsidies uh, given to uh, the wealthy, and that is the mortgage interest deduction rate. Uh, I, first of all, think that it should go away altogether, all but it's not going to happen that way. We'll start off by limiting that or capping that to you, the primary home that you live in instead of your beach house and your mountain home and all the investment properties. And that will help to reduce that artificial spike in, in the, in the uh, cost of housing. Um, it will reduce the amount of people that are doing the rent-seeking and trying to uh, develop wealth on the backs of others. Uh, we need to get rid of that. So uh, those are some concepts and some ideas that we can do to help uh, reduce and get to an affordable housing. Uh, but we got to make that affordable housing also uh, with living wages. You know, we've had a suppression of, of, of the minimum wage for 40 years, which basically anchors the wages of everyone else. Uh, and you know, the combination of, of a suppressed, uh, wage with, uh, the lack of affordable housing places, way too many of us in a struggling class.
0: Talk to me about, uh, strategies and really, uh, how you see handling, uh, the houselessness issue in district three.
1: Yes. So our homelessness issue has been a crisis since I first moved here in 2005. When I came back in 2015, it was super critical. Uh, The fact of the matter is we have had an absence of leadership from the city all the way up to the federal government. Now, I think there are three important things that can be done in order to alleviate our homelessness crisis. Number one, we should provide housing first program and policy. One that's similar to the one that's done in Salt Lake City similar to the one that's done in New Orleans, similar to the one that's done in Scandinavian countries. That is a program where you provide, you first of all acknowledge that housing is a human right. And if there's people that don't have housing, the government provides it. You provide it without restrictions, without hoops, without obstacles, without anything to jump through. So, um, you know, currently we have a lot of different programs, especially for temporary housing, where you have to uh, be off of drugs for X amount of time, or you have to be on your meds for X amount of time we need to provide the, sh- the, the stability of housing so that people can get to those levels. Uh, now you make that with a single payer universal Medicare for all system that includes drug dependency uh, treatment, that includes mental health treatment. If you put those two things together, I think that that will help reduce our houseless uh, population and get people housed. Uh, now third, I've already talked about this, is we need to have living wages. Um, if you peg the minimum wage from the 1970s simply to inflation, our minimum wage today would be $33 an hour, mm-hmm. uh, not, not the $7.25 that it is on the federal level, not the $12.25 it is here in progressive Portland. Um, when I first had my first W-2 job in 1990, I was making $3.80 working at a fast food joint outside of St. Louis. Uh, actually, I think it was probably making three dollars and twelve cents on a student wage, which was uh, a way to cheat students out of even uh, lower than a minimum mm-hmm. wage. But uh, you know, people saying, "Golly, that's a really low wage." But then, if you take that three dollars and eighty cents from nineteen ninety dollars and put them into twenty twenty dollars, that's thirteen dollars and ten cents. So it's actually higher uh, than the minimum wage that we provide here in Portland, and it's almost double what the minimum wage is on the federal level. So that just def- demonstrates that uh, we have a minimum wage that has been stagnating. People cannot live on that. You can't live on one full-time job and support your family, uh, and, and that's a shame. And we need to do something we can uh, to make sure that we have a living wage so that you can have one full-time job to support your family uh, and that you're not going to be houseless. So those three things together, housing first program and policy, a universal health care plan. Uh, that includes mental health and uh, drug dependency and living wages. I think those three things are what we need in order to uh, really uh, tackle our homelessness crisis.
0: Let's switch gears a little bit. Portland, uh, Oregon and Portland has a very proud tradition of progressivism as as concerned with uh, climate change and green policy during uh, this whole COVID crisis. How do we maintain this progressive uh, push towards uh, greener uh, technologies and green policy?
1: Yeah. I mean, the COVID crisis demonstrates something uh, a reality. Number one, it demonstrated that our uh, private employer based health insurance is failing but it also demonstrates something else. Uh, we were locked down around the globe. Our air quality increased dramatically from the lack of use of fossil fuels. You know, We have governments, we have businesses that say that we cannot do it. We've just demonstrated that we can. It's not a matter of can we, it's the political will of whether we have the political will to do it. Um, so you know, it took a it took a pandemic for us to actually affect the change that we need and we can see with a mere three four weeks that we can make some dramatic changes if we have the political will so yes we got to continue uh, to hammer that we got to demonstrate and show hey we can do this um but we need to continue to uh first of all stop things like having uh, a fossil fuel subsidy on the federal level uh next we need to stop digging more fossil fuels out of the ground uh, and then third, we need to start focusing on uh, renewable energy. But in in addition to all of that, we have to get out of our 20th century thinking, our individualistic way of thinking. You know, again, I was talking the, uh, a little bit earlier about the white picket fence and the single family house. we got to get away from that idea that uh, everybody can get that because, quite frankly, if everybody lived like the average American, we would need 25 Earths. We don't have 25 Earths. Um, but, you know, we talk about companies like Tesla and other electric car manufacturers that are coming into the into the realm, uh, producing really wonderful electric vehicles, but that's still 20th century thinking. So we're going to replace all these gas vehicles with battery electric vehicles. We still are going to maintain the same congestion. We're going to still have the same traffic, and we're going to start digging rare earths out uh, instead of uh, instead of digging out oil. That's not changing the game. We need to look at collective solutions. So we need to look at a massive push toward free public transit, and actually making our public roads public. And what I mean by that is taking 10, 25% of our roads and dedicating them only to public uh, transit and emergency vehicles. Initially, that will increase traffic and congestion. But if you're stuck in your little 20-foot private vehicle and you see eight or nine buses with 55 of your closest friends rolling by every two seconds, uh, I think that's going to incentivize you to get out of your vehicle. Uh, People aren't working with these things because currently our system uh, isn't that effective, uh, isn't that efficient, and isn't providing the services that people need. So we need to get large-scale solutions that are going to work for for a good portion of the people to get there. Uh, But we can't continue to do the same thing and expect a different result.
0: Yeah. Albert, how do do we coax those uh, industries and those companies to um – look towards a more green and a more progressive approach because uh like you were just talking about um they're very rooted in 20th century thinking and as we've learned um I mean over the last just couple few months the game has changed I mean, on some some ways, very fundamentally, uh, and ha- so how do we coax these businesses that that it is in their best interest and in their best bottom line, not to mention the the best interest of the Earth's bottom line, right? Right, To, right. Uh, to continue to uh, uh, march towards march towards the future,
1: carrot and stick, and quite frankly, we can't implement either carrot or stick right now because of money in politics. We have money in politics because of 40 years of jurisprudence at the Supreme Court, from Buckley v. Valeo all the way up to Citizens United, uh, which effectively has done two things. Number one, it says that money is speech, meaning the more money you have, the more speech you have, which drowns out the rest of us. Number two, corporations are people. Uh, Corporations are people. They have more money. They have more voice. Uh, so, effectively, uh, they, in turn, are able to bribe our politicians to do things that are not in the nature, in the best interest of the people or the planet. Uh, in order for us to uh, put people and planet over profit, we have to break the cycle of money in politics. Again, the only way we're going to do that is to start electing uh, folks that aren't taking the money um, and that are going to go in there and start breaking the system as it is and reforming it. Uh, We got to get the money out of politics if we're ever going to get a chance to have uh, uh, the way to implement the carrots and the sticks. And now moving on to the carrots and the sticks, uh, the carrots, we need to incentivize things like our military industrial uh, complex to transform and focus their efforts not on a war machine, but using those brilliant minds to focus on figuring out new technologies on energy capture, on energy, uh, renewable energy on rebuilding our infrastructure. We've got um, a military that uh, that we spend more than the next eight or nine countries combined, um, and we send them out throughout the world to destabilize the world. We should be turning that focus back inward. We've got so many folks within our military with a wide range of skills. They can help rebuild our infrastructure, help rebuild our education system. Uh, we can put that money and reinvest it in America. And then lastly, I think that we need to take a look at uh, implementing sticks. Quite honestly, we have a fossil fuel industry that is known for 40, 45 years, 50 years. Uh, uh, the, 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 they had the writing on the wall that uh, what they were doing was damaging our planet. And they hid that information. Uh, there are rules and laws on the books right now that we can go to prosecute those folks right now, uh, those corporations and those leaders. Uh, we can implement and create new laws to further uh, 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 look at criminal and civil penalties for those folks uh you know three or four years ago we talked about the volkswagen scandal have you heard anything else about that has anybody gone to jail i mean these they have deep pockets and they pay off these career politicians we need to get the money out of politics we need to break the cycle of career politicians
0: yeah uh, you you mentioned infrastructure um it was uh, somewhat of a talking point before the whole COVID crisis, uh, the need, you know, the bridge work and the need for roads uh, improvement. Um, how do we tackle that now? Uh, how, how do we lead towards uh, finding uh, a way to improve, you know, inter- infrastructure uh, over the next, uh, you know, five years?
1: Yeah. So I, I'm a proponent of modern monetary theory. Uh, we've seen modern monetary theory in action just three weeks ago. Uh, we put in two and a half, three trillion dollars into Wall Street. Did we have two and a half, three trillion dollars? <laughs> no, we didn't. We created it out of thin air. Uh, when, when Trump decided to provide a tax break on the wealthy, that was trillions of dollars. Did we have trillions of dollars? No, it came out of thin air. Um, whenever anybody asks how we're going to pay for things, it's only when we talk about things that are going to benefit the people. Whenever it's uh, a benefit for those at the very top or for the military, it just that never gets discussed. Now, we've had a serious crisis with our infrastructure because of deferred maintenance around the country. You know, I have friends that work for FERC uh, here in Oregon that talked about 80% of our bridges uh, being beyond uh, their, their uh, uh, lifespan. Uh, I remember the old rickety Selwood bridge we had down as you remember. I remember riding my bike over that and feeling it swaying, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to have our government invest in these things. And when the government uh, does deficit spending, that's a good thing. That's putting money back into our economic system. And that brings for every dollar that the government spends two $3 gets created. Okay. Uh, so say that we, for instance, nationalize our rail system and electrify that, okay? We rebuild that entire network. That puts jobs that cannot be exported uh, to another country into the hands. That employs people. Now, you think about all those people working on putting together that high-speed rail system. they are got to eat somewhere, right? Well, that's going to create new jobs with folks that are going to cater to service those workers. Uh, And then as you're going through the rail system, all the little uh, rural towns and villages that get past there are going to get a spike in, in, in business. Um, for every dollar that the government spends, you're going to get multitude, multiple uh, dollars uh, coming back out of that. Uh, now, on top of that, when you're looking at something like a high-speed rail system, that could be the backbone of so many other things. Uh, one of the things that I'm a proponent for is uh, broadband as a free public utility. And we know that, especially in our rural areas, in Oregon and rural areas across the country, uh, we have very poor internet service. And quite frankly, it is something that's a necessity. COVID crisis demonstrates that. Uh, We need that for our education of our children right now. And if we don't, if you're too poor to have it, what happens to your children? If you're out in the rural areas where you can't get the infrastructure, what happens to your children? We need to make that a public utility, and that can be uh, piggybacked on a backbone of a high-speed rail system. Uh, again, these things uh, would, pre- cre- create wealth, would create wealth. Uh, they uh, would create new industries. It would create jobs. That's how we do it. Um, and so it's not a matter of how you're going to pay for it. It's what you're going to invest in.
0: Excellent. When we talk about investing, uh, so much is uh, pivotal in these uh, uh, upcoming elections. And I, I, I think of the younger generation and Generation Z and trying to uh, have them get more of a voice, get more involved. And, uh, I mean, I, I have two children, uh, and one of them is voting age. And he talks a, a little bit about, you know, being turned off by all all just the whole morass, you know, especially at the national level. Um, How do we we, uh, access that Generation Z and get them fired up? Because, I mean, their voice is going to be more pivotal than ever.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to break apart what you've asked and and, and break it down in a couple different things because what I hear in that is a couple different things. One, I hear um, an apathy of our youth. And I wanna counter that and say that there isn't an apathy that we have so many youth that are fighting and standing up uh, for the environment, fighting and standing up for a lot of different social issues. Uh, We've had out of Oregon, uh, high schoolers uh, that came to defend uh, their right to uh, a living planet when they're adults that got knocked down unfortunately by uh, a variety of different courts. But there is uh, a groundswell of youth standing up. on the other hand, we hear about, oh, well, they didn't turn out to the votes. And unlike Oregon, where we have vote by mail, a lot of places have a lot of different tricks up their sleeve to dif- disenfranchise voters. So if you don't have a whole lot of time, if you got to work uh, a shift job or if you've got to pick up your kid, you don't have time to wait eight hours in a polling place, Right. So you're not going to be able to stick around uh, when all of a sudden the assignments for polling places for uh, uh, demographics where they're younger or browner get less poll uh, uh, ballot boxes than a place that has uh, older folks and with a whole lot more time. They can zip in and out. we got to figure out a way to have a nationwide vote by mail system. We got to figure out to have a way to have a nationwide rank-choice voting system, so that we're not voting for the lesser of two evils, and we can break up this uh, two-party duopoly. Uh, and quite frankly, the youth are standing up. Uh, and uh, I think another way to encourage the youth is to lower the voting age. I think that we should lower the voting age to 16. Uh, I think that that will help to bring uh, practice. In civic engagement, we can make that to the civic lessons that they're learning in high school as they are going through, and they can take and practice what they're learning then. Um, you know, the other day, I, I had an opportunity to speak. Um, uh, last fall, should I say, I had an opportunity to speak with a community college group. And, you know, we, we talked about the campaign, we talked about civics, and uh, I was a little upset that we had to back up a little bit and get down to really basic stuff about the three branches government and, and talking about that. So we need to rebuild our education system to help uh, develop uh, that lust, that yearning for uh, civic
0: engagement as well. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, back when I, you know, back in the day when I was in school, I mean, there was civics class uh, where we learn, you know, about that. And how, how prevalent is that in today's uh, educational system?
1: You know, I don't know. I, and, and this is one of the things that I would like to see with our public education system. So just a, for an aside, uh, when I was growing up, I grew up in North County, St. Louis, next door to Ferguson. Uh, my dad was employed for most of my childhood. And my mom, she worked two jobs. She worked as a cook at a nursing home in the daytime, and she worked at a fast food joint at night. And she did so in order to afford the tuition to put my sister and me into Catholic school. And the reason why she put us in Catholic school is because she knew, she saw it. That our public school system was truly separate and unequal. You know, we were in the Riverview Gardens Public School District in North County, St. Louis, and it was light years behind uh, uh, the West County school districts. Uh, she saw that if we went through that uh, education system, uh, we would not have the future that we had, uh, uh, we would eventually have. Uh, so she invested in our education, but I don't think it's fair. I don't think it's right that the kids in my neighborhood um, who didn't have parents that could work a couple of jobs or to have the extra money to put them into a Catholic school uh, were stuck with subpar education, uh, which led to a de- uh, 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 lower access to opportunities in the future. We need to have a national standard. Uh, when I hear terms like local control, I hear buzzwords about maintaining segregation, I hear buzzwords about keeping, um, um, you know, education for some better for, than for others. Uh, we have here, in even in our Portland public school system, uh, completely different outcomes depending on your zip code. If you're up in the West Hills, you, you effectively have basically private education uh, versus in northern parts of the town or eastern parts of the, of the district. Um, and I just don't think that that's necessarily fair. And I think that we're shooting ourselves in the foot. You know, I understand and appreciate that everybody wants to have the best education for their families uh, and for their kids. But if we focus on one area and then uh, deny an opportunity in the other area, you're going to pay for it fourfold on the back end with increased police, increased social services, uh, increased um, um, crime, increased everything else. There's so many negative externalities by not providing an equal access to opportunity
0: that's excellent that that literally leads me into the last question real quick about representing all and uh especially those who have been marginalized and and somehow you know are not thought of first as as uh, we talk about the demographics of of a certain area um right. h- how How do you albert make sure that everyone is well represented uh as as we march forward? Yeah, thank you. So I'm going to bring a couple pieces of history for us. Number one, we've had approximately
1: 64 representatives from the state of Oregon since its assumption. Okay. 64 uh, coming from an at-large seat to now having five districts and possibly six next cycle. Um, Now out of those 64, only one has been an immigrant and only one has not been white. And it was actually the same person. So, one out of sixty four that's the first bit of uh, uh, trivia. The second bit of trivia is we have five districts right now. One hundred percent of our representatives are multimillionaires. One hundred percent of our uh, representatives are property owners. One hundred percent of our representatives are over the age of sixty two one hundred percent of them are white, and four out of five are men that's not That's simply not representative of our state uh, where Less than 1.4% of us are millionaires. 44% of us, myself included, are renters. Uh, you know, a good 75% of us are below the age of 62. And a good 15 to 18% of us are not white. So uh, with those demographics, and I'm talking about running for the lower house, for the house of representatives, for the people's house, uh, it should be representative of the people. Uh, and right now what we have is a bunch of one percenters uh, that are representing the state. Uh, here in our district, uh, we've had 13 representatives. In the last 40 years, we've only had two. Uh, 11 have been men, two have been women, and the majority of them have come from the upper class. Uh, we, if you, if you want to have uh, workable solutions, you need to have uh, a, a diversity of ideas, thoughts, and opinions, and that only comes with a diversity of representatives. We all have blind spots. I have blind spots, you have blind spots, but if we're all coming from the same small uh, cut from the same cloth, uh, we're going to have a huge blind spot. We need to diversify uh, our representation across age, across ethnic background, across lived experience. For me, uh, I have the experience of an immigrant, experience of a minority, a marginalized community, experience of a veteran. You know, I served in the United States Army, Um, experience as a first-generation college and law school grad. Uh, I think that uh, uh, I also have some personal experience with homelessness and domestic violence. I think that the combination of my personal experience and my professional experience bodes well for somebody who wants to represent the entirety of our district and not just those at the very top.
0: Where can people go to learn more about you?
1: At albertlee2020.com. Excellent. Thank you so much, Albert.